Beautiful. Julia is here. As soon as she gets back there, she's back there. And uh, you can meet her for your Bible bags. The rest of us, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. This is, of course, the central verse for the Pentecost event. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 21 is where Luke records what happens on this Pentecost Sunday so long ago. We're going to go through the 21st verse as we read this wonderful account. As I was reading this, I couldn't help but think how God so often uses actual physical events to communicate to us deeply spiritual things. Though God is spirit and we worship him in spirit and in truth, he nevertheless created a physical world. And this world is a part of his expression of love and care for us. And so he uses this world to speak both to our natural senses, but also to our supernatural senses, to these great intuitive senses of the soul. We just completed seven weeks of Easter, and we celebrated, of course, the primary moment where he combines the spiritual and physical in one communication to us. And that communication, of course, is the empty tomb. It's a physical place. You can actually be there. And it's a spiritual event in which death now has no sting. It cannot hold us back. Resurrection occurs. Fingers can touch the wounds of the resurrected one. There are physical appearances up to 500 at one time. And there's, of course, that great physical spiritual ascension uh, that we talked about last week. This morning on Pentecost, this physical spiritual experience is that of the coming of the Holy Spirit on all flesh. It happened not just in the invisible realm, but rather there was a visible auditory language, languages of elements and languages of people. I want to focus just a moment on one of those languages, the element of fire. Fire has often been an experience that God has used to communicate to us. I think immediately, all of us do, think of the burning bush that never burns up. It catches Moses' attention out in the wilderness. He goes to see what's there and God speaks to him through the burning bush. It's the same kind of thing as these cloven tongues of fire fit on the heads of the people who are in the upper room of Pentecost. It caught their attention just as Moses did. We think of the fiery pillar that led the people through the wilderness, the fire from heaven that consumed the offering of Elijah, the descending of God on Sinai, like a fire, Moses says, and on and on. There is every indication of Scripture that these moments in history are actual physical, spiritual experiences, not visions, an individual vision that you might have, or private imagination, and certainly not an hallucination, but rather there are moments where everyone present experiences what God is saying in some form or manner, depending on their ability to hear. And you can see it throughout Scripture that if you have the ears to hear, you'll hear God in the midst of these great moments of life. He will speak to us both through our physical as we experience the moment itself and spiritual senses. We have just finished Eastertide. We're now done with this week of weeks, and we've entered into Pentecost, this wonderful symbol of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the flames that came out from the Holy Spirit on all people. 
is in St. Peter's Basilica. It's the symbol of the church and the birth of the church. It's behind the high altar that you find there. It's that moment, of course, when we're able to experience all that God is doing within the life of the church because of the Holy Spirit's coming upon us, flames bursting forth. So I would encourage you to go now to that upper room. We're in an upper room on this stilted church as we experience the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Imagine seeing the flames. Imagine hearing and feeling the wind as it bursts through the room. Imagine the people being able to communicate in ways that they had never been able to talk and the people hearing in all the languages of the world. Everyone who is present heard in their own tongue. Allow yourself to be in that place as we read these words. Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin with the first verse and go through the 21st. The NIV uh, translators put this title on it, The Holy Spirit Comes at Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Keep that open before you. Let us pray. Father, we've come this day to acknowledge that we're the church. We're the body of Christ. We're the people that you have given your spirit to and given your gifts to so that we can be about this ministry of reconciliation.
within all of nature and within all of humanity. Be with each of us right now. Allow us to make whatever changes so that we can be the church in the fullness as you intended it to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In each of these times when God did this physical, spiritual event where there are fire and wind and sound that communicated to the people, this event meant to define a change in the relationship between God and his people, a change in the covenant. We saw it with Moses. We saw it on Sinai. We see it with Elijah and with the prophets of Baal. We see it with Israel, with Jacob, with the experience of the promise and the exodus and the parting of the land, all of that. Each of these moments, God changed his relationship with his people, his covenant, his testament, as we call it, the Old and the New Testament, although there are more covenants than those. At this moment in Pentecost, God's Spirit no longer just comes upon a prophet or a priest or a king, as it has in the Old Testament and as we read in the book of Numbers. It's now upon all people of all nations, of both genders, to create a new presence on the earth. Pentecost is the birth of the church. This day communicates that God is present not in the burning bush, not on Mount Sinai, not in the altars of Jerusalem, but he is present in you and he's present in me. When two of us are gathered, we are promised, that's where Jesus is. That's where his presence has come. Now what's interesting is that even though God communicated this change in a very physical, spiritual way to everyone, even those who were not believers experienced that moment, that day, some, of course, ridiculing and others asking, what does this mean? We have to admit something happened, whether we're a believer or not a believer. There's an actual event. And yet, even with this amazing Pentecost event, there are some Christians who say, no, nothing changed. There's no changes in the way that God has interacted. As though God still resides in buildings or in temples or special prayers or religious acts. As though that's what we should be doing as the body of Christ and the people of God. As though if we're going to find God, we have to go somewhere else to seek him when in fact he is with us in you and in me. Now I can understand the impulse of that. There's something within us as human beings that want to have special places. And I have to admit this sanctuary where I've experienced God so many times has become a very special place in my heart. And just to walk in here gives me a preparatory kind of spirit and attitude to be with God. But the truth is, what makes this space sacred is you and me. It's not sacred in itself, and God does not reside in buildings. He resides in you and in me, and wherever we go, there God is. And he's at work in that place. So if that is true and everything has changed, then we need to answer this question that the people asked that day. What does this mean? What does Pentecost mean? To answer that, Peter goes to the prophecy of Joel, given about 800 to 500 years 
before this event of Pentecost, and he prepared us to understand what does it mean when the Holy Spirit comes upon all people. And there seems to be two things, and we're going to focus on just the first today, but I want to mention both of them. First, that all people, men and women, sons and daughters, young and old, even slaves, both male slaves and female slaves, all people, all flesh, will receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them. In other words, all the usual distinctions that we as human beings do in all the various cultures of who is important and who is worthy, and who is blessed, is removed. And all people of all distinctions, from the wealthy to the poorest, the female slave was the poorest of that society, the old to the young, the men to the women, were all the same and we all receive the same Holy Spirit. Now the second thing that it means, this wonders of creation, that creation itself is going to go through a change. We see that in the words of Jesus himself in the Gospels. Joel spoke of the prophecy and he says that in this moment there is going to be such a major climate change that all of us are going to need God in order to be safe. That the world itself is going to go through a birthing process as Jesus describes it. This dramatic fact causes us to, to recognize that we have responsibility for and a relationship with creation itself. But it's God who is going to care for us in ultimate sense. Now, just as it has been difficult for Christians to stop thinking of God as living in a building, I want to focus on this first part. We don't need religious acts or buildings, and yet it's been hard for the church to not think that the church is a building or that religious acts are what God wants us to do. And we can, in fact, miss this change that the church is within the body of Christ. There are still people today who think that the church is under the old order or the old covenant, that things have not changed. But they clearly have. And so I want us to look at those and in what way. But it's important for us to live into these changes because we're the ones who are the church. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all humanity. The spiritual gifts have been given to the young and to the old, to the slave and to the free, to the male and to the female. Now, the Greek that is used here is very specific. It's not, there are Greek words which simply means humanity as a whole. But here, the words that are used in the prophecy by Joel are very specific to make it clear the young and the old, the slave and the free, both male and female, to sons and daughters, we're all going to experience the same power, gifting, importance of the Holy Spirit. And that is something that the church is meant to live into. There is not some of us who have the Holy Spirit, as you might have heard in teaching, that the Holy Spirit only comes upon some Christians and that they are Spirit-filled Christians. When you use the word Spirit-filled, it means that we are open completely to the Holy Spirit's leading and guidance. Not that the Holy Spirit wasn't present in our lives, pulling us. We call it prevenient grace, where he pulls us to God and pulls us to an experience with him. 
So we are all equal, not just at the foot of the cross, but at the Holy Spirit's outpouring. The implications of that are many. Joel emphasizes twice that men and women are equal in the church. The reason for this is that a devastating result of the fall is male dominance and male privilege. It has subjugated women throughout all the millennia, still does so today, even in Christian nations where women are not treated equally. Even sadly, in many areas of the church. But it's obvious, both by Joel's prophecy, by Peter's sermon, and by the Holy Spirit's gifting, that it's not to be so in the church where there is male privilege and male dominance. The church is the place where the fall is reversed, where in fact all people are treated equal. And that equality is something that goes far beyond just some kind of economic equality. There are those who think that woman's equality is a goal of the church. That is far too shallow. And it's a misunderstanding of the kerygma, the preaching, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Equality of all humanity is the reality of the church. And we are either living into this prophecy and the description of the church, or we are missing out on the good news of the gospel, the reversal of the fall, the return to Eden. Any church that limits the ministry of women who the Holy Spirit has gifted is denying the true nature of the church and God's kingdom. Both men and women will prophesy. They will speak on behalf of God. They will be inspired by God to teach and to protect and to guide and to comfort and to, to uh, rebuke and to lead. It's an equality of gifting where God calls those to do so. The second thing we note is that young and old are equal in the church. In my care for other churches as a superintendent, I have some churches where the young have no voice. This is in cultures which revere their elders and they give honor to age. And culturally, that culture has been imposed upon the church. And they have said that unless you're older, you cannot serve on the board. And so I have churches that have all 80-year-olds who are in charge of the church. On the other side, I have some churches where only younger people are allowed to decide what the music will be or what the worship will be or what the ministries will be or what the community will be. Both of those extremes miss the point of the church. The church is young and old, in equality, living together in honor and respect for all ages, young and old, equally empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work of God as together all ages combined so that we might be the church of God, contrary to the world and its cultures and its ways of either disregarding the old as having no significance or venerating the old as though they have to make the calls. And last, in the church, the socioeconomic status, which was signified most in the ancient world by slaves and free, by those who had to work for and had no freedom to not work for, and those who, in fact, cared for others. The world is striated. 
We all experience it in a hundred different ways. We see neighborhoods that are segregated. We see country clubs and social groups that are segregated. But the church should not be segregated in any way or in any manner. We are equally blessed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Every human being, the Holy Spirit poured out on all mortal flesh. All of us are equal. There's no pecking order in the church. There's no pecking order of wealth or of education or of any worldly striation. And to allow those striations to come into the church and to honor people in worldly ways is to miss the unity of the church and the countercultural nature of God's kingdom and God's way of being. Now, as you can see, the church is intended to be the community of all people living by the principles of equal equality, freedom, respect, dignity, because we equally share the Spirit of God coming upon all flesh, and all of us are equal in the kingdom of God. It's my prayer that our own congregation and that all the congregations will increasingly leave behind the fall and all of its ways of interacting and subjugation privilege, all the world's striations and ageism, leaving behind the sexism, and that human beings will be united together in this amazing counterculture that God began on Pentecost Sunday. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that we're going to give an alternative to the world and to the way the world uh, lives in this competitive, warring madness and lack of unity and care for one another. So as Joe called the early church, so we listen to those words today. And we are called to be the church of Jesus Christ in full intention. So let's spend time with God.